Hey friends, it's Eric Culkin. On this episode of Behind the Headlines, we recap the midterm election with Simon Schuster. Thank you very much, Eric. It is great to be here. We're coming off um, a big date on the election calendar in Michigan. Uh, I know you're a big fan of politics. Uh, you have a lot of thoughts about it. Uh, it's a really popular topic with our readers because it's it's really uh, important stuff. But we just finished a primary and I, I'm prone to analogies. I like analogies. So I, it's, you know, a lot of times the primaries are like a menu at Applebee's or something. And there's there's tons of stuff. There's tons of races, um, very colorful, <laughs> lots of things. This time, the primary election in Michigan seemed like it was like a James Beard restaurant. It had like four things on the menu that were interesting, um, but they were very interesting, um, uh, very tasty. And I think there's some things uh, to break down about what happened in the primary and then looking ahead, of course, to the general election in November. And I think uh, nobody better to do it than uh, from MLive's political coverage team in Lansing, Simon Schuster. Good morning, Simon, and welcome back to Behind the Headlines. Thanks so much for having me on, John. I appreciate it. Uh, you, what'd you think of my metaphor there? Uh, yeah, you know, I think it was true. Um, I think that, you know, while there was a few main courses here, there was certainly a wide selection of appetizers to choose from as well, however. Well, thank you. Thanks for rounding out my my metaphor and <laughs> endorsing it. I appreciate it. Um, you know, a lot of times, like I said, in the primary election, you got action on both sides of the ticket. Obviously, that wasn't the case here. And just for our readers coming late to things or forgot to vote. Uh, can you tell us why that was? Yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of pivot point in this election came very, very late. And that was sort of the endorsement, uh, at least on the gubernatorial side of things, uh, the endorsement from uh, former President Donald Trump of Republican gubernatorial candidate Tudor Dixon. He endorsed her the Friday before the primary. So essentially, I believe only about 100 hours before the election itself, that this endorsement came in. And uh, but really, you know, sort of last second polling showed that while uh, Dixon had a slight lead uh, sort of heading into this weekend before the election, that she really pulled away and that by the Monday before the election, there was polling that indicated that of uh, voters who uh, that I think about 60 percent of Republican voters had known that President Trump had endorsed uh, Tudor Dixon. It sort of shows his, cam his continued command of the news cycle and what that can mean for a candidate. And so she really pulled away, you know, here at the at the last moment and had about 40 percent of the vote, a plurality, but nevertheless a decisive win. Yeah, and I think she doubled up the next nearest candidate um, in terms of, of polling. He said there were five candidates. And we'll come back. We'll put a pin into the whole Trump thing. I think that merits its own five minutes of discussion. Um, but obviously, on, on the Democratic side, we've got a bunch of incumbents. So uh, there wasn't a lot of action happening on the Democratic side. I think there was one race of note um, over in the Detroit area. Can you can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, certainly. So uh, with redistricting, uh, you know, coming into effect this election cycle, Michigan lost one congressional seat. We've gone from 14 down to 13. And so mostly there was a way that people shuffled. Uh, Fred Upton, an incumbent uh, congressman, decided not to run for office. But there was one primary in which two incumbents were facing each other, and that's in the 11th district between uh, the incumbent U.S. reps, uh, Andy Levin and uh, Haley Stevens. And so this was a primary that sort of turned out pretty collegial, relatively tame. And then, of course, you know, with any campaign, 
really this, the purpose of the campaign is to highlight you, the differences between you and your opponent. And, uh, you know, so much outside money poured into this race that it gradually became more and more acrimonious. Uh, outside spenders played a big role, funneling in millions of dollars. And from a preliminary look, this was uh, likely the most expensive congressional primary uh, that we saw here in August. And um, at the end, it really didn't uh, end up being close. Uh, I believe that um, uh, Stevens won with about 60% of the vote. And uh, she really sort of walked away with this one, which is sort of, uh, it marks an end to a dynasty of one of the most prominent uh, Jewish political families in the United States, which is the Levins. Uh, Andy mm -hmm. was the son of uh, Sander Levin, a longtime U.S. congressman, and the nephew of Carl Levin, who had been the U.S. Senator for Michigan for a long time. And so this is also, I think, marks um, uh, really sort of a, it was sort of a testing point for how much appetite there might be for sort of an all of the above progressive agenda after you'd sort of seen these efforts stymied in the early days of the Biden administration. And so uh, Stevens sort of uh, championing an economic driven message and really sort of pragmatic messaging uh, really sort of won the day. What's interesting is Haley Stevens uh, in the general election in 2020 didn't win by a landslide. Uh, it was a pretty close election. She's been a little bit of a lightning rod for critics, um, you know, her tenure. And yet she really pulled away from Levin. I think that, and that a little surprising, as you said, because of the name recognition, a lot of times voters, that's what they go with at the, at the ballot box. But um, there was also some uh, sort of, a, they turned into a campaign issue. I don't know if this was just in that primary in the democratic side, but you know, support for Israel. And is that really going to carry over to the general election? Do you think that issue? Uh, I don't necessarily think so, but I think it's really what's important to note is that uh, while there was millions of dollars from the largest sort of pro-Israel interest group in the United States, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee that poured into this election, I believe that they were the single largest spender so far uh, in the congressional primaries, that really the, the money that they were spending wasn't really mentioning Israel all that much. Uh, the super PAC that they used, the United Democracy Project, just sort of provided boilerplate messaging about all the great things that Haley Stevens has done, along with the other two candidates that they had supported, including Adam Ollier. And so they really sort of avoided talking about their issue of choice and were really just looking for the electoral outcome that they care about. And uh, I think, you know, while they got it in the 11th, uh, the 13th, where uh, uh, current state rep Shri Thanadar won that election, uh, I think a nine or 10 way primary, um, they did, they did not get the outcome they were seeking. That's interesting. And, um, uh, I think I, I was going to come to this later, but it's kind of a natural segue into outside money. That's sort of in a misdirected ad campaign ended up being a real factor over on the West side of the state for perhaps I thought the most headline worthy, you know, race of, of all, which was Peter Meyer, first term Republican incumbent who talk about name recognition, it's on like 137 stores in Michigan uh, in, in the same typography uh, running for re-election. It was challenged by John Gibbs, uh, who's a Trump back uh, candidate and had, I think, worked for Trump's administration. Um, and then let's first of all talk about were you surprised by the outcome of that election with Gibbs beating the incumbent? But then we would get to into the, some of the money aspect of that, too. Right. Uh, I don't know if I was surprised to be honest with you. Uh, I think that this was very much a litmus test of sort of Trump's hold on the Republican Party in the, in the you know, 2022, especially in an area that it, a district that shifted blue through di uh, redistricting, it's moving a little bit more uh, blue than it was uh, prior to this election. 
And, you know, Kent County has shown itself to have a lot of interest in sort of having a moderate uh, conservative individual who isn't necessarily populist or Trumpian in nature. But that ended up uh, not being enough for Meyer. And so um, I don't know if I was personally uh, surprised, but I think that it's sort of a really good litmus test of sort of, you know, where President Trump uh, really was out for blood in this race. He wanted Gibbs to defeat Meyer. He wanted Meyer out of office, all because Meyer had uh, voted for the former president's impeachment in the wake of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And, uh, you know, this was sort of enough to draw the ire of the former president and really commit to having him defeated. And the fact that he succeeded in that, I think, is really a testament, um, you know, in part to the campaign Gibbs ran, but really also, I think, in a big way to the hold that uh, former President Trump still has on the Republican Party. Yeah, and the, the money aspect I want to talk about, because I've heard from a number of readers, and I've heard anecdotally from people I know, uh, who really were put off by Democratic money coming into a Republican primary race. Uh, a lot of, I think it was Gibbs, the, the donation that the Democratic uh, Nash, uh, uh, the committee made was more than Gibbs had raised on his own. And I think people can't, couldn't intuit or grok why the Democratic Party would get involved in that. Can you break down? I mean, politics is kind of cynical and it's a contact sport. So uh, a kind of an outcome driven. Um, you had mentioned that in the, in when you're talking about the pro-Israel lobby, uh, they had an end in mind and the messaging didn't really match what the end in mind that they had was. I think that happened in the Gibbs race too, didn't it? Right. And, you know, I think that uh, this ad, which wasn't hidden behind a front group or disguise, it was from, you know, the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, um, is really sort of the definition of a gambit. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, people who spend a lot of time in politics tend to drift towards cynicism. And people identified what the intended effect here was pretty quickly. I mean, this was an ad attacking John Gibbs, saying he's too conservative for West Michigan. And so, you know, you could read this on his face and say, you know, this is meant to make Gibbs look bad. So you think that this would boost Meyer. But really, the effect here was to uh, sort of associate Gibbs with Trump and put that message in front of voters so that they saw Gibbs with the former president and understand that he is the candidate of Trump and that um, a vote for Gibbs then would sort of be more so a vote against Democrats than a vote for Meyer would be. And, uh, you know, it's hard to gauge the electoral effect, the, the you know, uh, the impact at the end of the day that a political ad has on the final vote. But the amount of money that was being spent, it would be hard to say that this didn't have some sort of effect on the final outcome of the election, especially right. such a close race like this. And some of the analysts said, you know, we get it, but it's you're, you're kind of opening Pandora's box at that point, you're playing with fire. And it, if you catalyze the, you know, the Trump base uh, and you mentioned Kent County has been progressively moving blue. I think the Democratic strategists clearly believe that uh, you know, Scholten, the, their candidate, the Democratic candidate, can beat Gibbs from their polling, or what? I don't know what you're hearing on that. We'll talk about the general election, but it, it is, it like I said, the people who uh, are more idealistic about politics had a really bad reaction <laughs> to the Democrats spending that money. But I think if you're looking at the end game and you're just looking at getting that seat in Congress, you kind of understand why they did it. Right, certainly. I think that they see Scolton as the more, uh, that Gibbs as the, the less electable candidate and, and less of an adversary against Scolton than Meyer would be because of Meyer's sort of moderate stances on a number of issues. I mean, this was a Republican who voted in favor for codifying gay marriage in federal law. 
um, which you know a number of Republicans did, but that certainly places him in the major uh, the minority among his colleagues. Uh, and so Gibbs is sort of, you know, uh, at least, you know, insofar as he wants to be elected and defeat Meyer, MAGA all the way. And uh, so I think that that's, you know, I believe that they, the D-Trip has uh, clearly believes that uh, Skolton is going to have a better chance against Gibbs than they do Meyer. And so D-Trip now is going to have that opportunity. But if John Gibbs ends up winning in November, I think there's going to be a lot of hand-wringing on the point of Democrats. This was an ad that angered Democrats and they were not so... Uh, pleased to see this sort of, uh, you know, backhanded strategy coming to bear in this district. Yeah, the, uh, you know, and we could have a whole separate podcast on, you know, this um, endangered species of Republicans who look like country club Republicans or business friendly Republicans or tax policy Republicans. And, and Meyer, you know, maybe he just in, living in the wrong era. I think, you know, 30 years ago and Gerald Ford's still alive, he'd look like the perfect Republican for West Michigan. It's obvious that the the, the stakes have changed. Um, the definition, you know, he was getting labeled a rhino by by Trump. And obviously for Trump, these things are personal, you know, in, in getting his vengeance for, for the impeachment vote. But, you know, is that, is there a lesson in there? Like when we see somebody like Meyer with that kind of name recognition, uh, who who's did some votes on his conscience and, 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 you know, really other than in Trump's mind, he did something terribly wrong, but he, he didn't really stumble in his first term in Congress. Is there something to take away from this or was it the circumstances of that particular race too uh, particular to that race to draw any conclusions? No, I think that it's a really, um, Interesting point, and I think it's one of the the themes that sort of uh, we can harken back to when we think about the Michigan Republican Party over the last uh, a dozen years. You know, since the advent of the Tea Party. Uh, you know, I often think back to covering the 2016 presidential election, and I went to a rally for then candidate Marco Rubio, who's still the U.S. Senator from Florida, and it was in a hangar in Kent County. And the amount of you know slacks, blazers, and sport coats that was in that audience was astounding to me because uh, then I don't think it was only just a month or two afterwards that I went to a, a Trump rally in, in uh, also in Kent County, just outside Grand Rapids. And it was like night and day. You did not see the sort of posh upper crust crowd. And so this has sort of been the tension that the Republican Party has sort of had to marry as it sort of realigned itself ideologically in the Trump era. And it's important to remember that in the 2020 election, uh, you know, Biden carried Trump, uh, Kent County by a slim margin. Right. And this is really, I think, a good example of him placing a flag here and saying, you know, there might be an independent streak that these West Michigan conservatives are going to have. But at the end of the day, you're still beholden to me. Right. And the, I thought there was a little bit of, and, and it's probably nothing, but sort of interested me that Tudor Dixon was a DeVos family back candidate as well. And Betsy DeVos, of course, was in the cabinet as education secretary for Donald Trump. And then right after, you know, right in the aftermath of January 6th, uh, she resigned from the cabinet out, out of conscience. And um, this, this intersection, strange bedfellows, you know, is Trump comes back endorsing Dixon. This is the, the, the DeVos back candidate. So, I mean, it's just politics, but I just thought that, that that was a little interesting intersection of those two worlds meeting where it was like a little more mainstream Republican type uh, of family and, and interests. And then the, the whole, reality in the Republican world that you need the Trump endorsement um, to get off the launch pad. 
Right. And, you know, uh, I think that that's sort of harkens back to that classic phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I think that they see their common opponent in Democratic, you know, the Democratic incumbent, uh, incumbent uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, obviously uh, overshadows any sort of internal conflict, even if it means that uh, the fa- that the woman who uh, endorsed this candidate uh, sort of considered invoking the 25th Amendment to have having <laughs> former President Trump removed from office. That, you know, a nice handwritten note sent to Trump, according to reporter uh, reporting from MERS News, saying that we need to unite behind this candidate so that we can defeat Whitmer because she's got the best shot. Um, that matters. And that speaks to, I think, someone like President Trump, you know, um, as much as he wants to, you know, pick the candidate who speaks his values and is perhaps the most Trumpian and supportive of the former president, he also wants to pick a winner. And so uh, I, I what I was hearing from sources in the lead up to this endorsement is that he was getting pulled in a lot of different directions. And he didn't know, you know, sort of, you know, when you have multiple uh, advisors in the palace who are all telling you different things, um, you don't really know which way to go. And so I think that this was sort of there was enough of a chorus of support and, and pushing him in that distant direction that uh, he really sort of finally was able to pull the trigger at the last second. Yeah, I wish we could do a sliding doors thing. It's that movie where there's parallel tracks, you know, of two, two, two lives at once. And you could see uh, the consequences of decisions that are made. If he had endorsed somebody else, how that would have, you know, because she won by 20 percentage points. So something like that, Tudor Dixon did. Is if he had gone with Saldano or somebody else, uh, what would have happened? We'll never know. Uh, I was thinking Tudor Dixon looked pretty strong, but uh, I, I just, you don't know. So but that said, let's talk about the Trump halo effect. Uh, and how much is that quantifiable? Um, you know, he he picked some people around the country who didn't win. Uh, I, I didn't go back and quantify his success rate with his endorsements, but it seemed to be actually uh, be a factor here in Michigan. So for the primary itself, how can you kind of gauge that? And then looking forward to the fall, how much you think that carries? Right. I mean, I think that it's definitely a boost, uh, but at the end of the day, there is sort of that iconic saying, which is that all politics is local, and it depends, I think, just as much upon the candidate. I think it has to be a marriage of the Trump endorsement with a candidate that everyone who for whom the, the Trump endorsement may not be a deciding factor um, can still, you know, pallet that candidate. I think Jackie Eubanks uh, in Oakland County uh, was one of those examples where the candidate had proved herself not to be palatable to the electorate. And despite this Trump endorsement, uh, really sort of had a poor showing on, on, on primary election day because her sort of her policy beliefs and all, all the things that she had been on record saying were so, uh, you know, outside the mainstream that she just couldn't get on board. Um, she had said she had advocated for, among other things, including criminalizing birth control. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the result of the Trump endorsements, especially at the legislative level within the state, uh, was a mixed bag. And, uh, you know, so they did, he did not get all the wins that he wanted. But at the end of the day, um, I think that, you know, his hold over the party is still uh, important. I think that uh, one of the things that really goes against uh, Trump is that when he endorses grassroots candidates, um, grassroots figures and grassroots organizations in the Michigan Republican Party remain fractured. You know, there's many different little eddies inside things. I think the sort of splitting of the vote between Ryan Kelly, someone who didn't actually, a gubernatorial candidate who didn't actually campaign all that much. He didn't hire professional political campaign staff. Uh, He didn't put in the sort of um, 
uh, you know, shoe leather that his opponent, Garrett Saldano, did. Garrett Saldano hired uh, a campaign staff that were veterans of political campaigns. He put like, you know, tens of thousands, he put more than 40,000 miles on a leased campaign vehicle and really sort of uh, pounded pavement, going to a ton of campaign events, still didn't get that much higher than Kelly did, who put, you know, uh, despite the, the contrast and the amount of effort. So the, the division and the lack of discipline among grassroots circles, I think, really... Um, works against them when there is quite a bit of discipline among sort of hierarchical, more establishment Republican circles. And so uh, I think that, uh, you know, Trump would much rather, if it's convenient for him, take those disciplined choices, those people who can have a lot of institutional backing over someone who might be a fringe grassroots character. Yeah. Like you said, at the end of the day, they want to win. Um, and it's a long established fact that midterm elections tend to swing against incumbency um, at least on, uh, writ large, you know, not each each particular race, because there's certain people names like Dingle or whatever, who kind of always get elected. But, you know, there's there is a little bit of against the, the, the standing party, the party that won the presidential election usually doesn't fare as well in, in midterms. Is, is that a is that factor, which is more of a national thing? Is that a factor in Whitmer's uh, reelection campaign, her bid to be reelected? Um, she's had the benefit of just sitting back and raising a ton of money. And uh, I thought one of the most interesting stories of the past year, she actually gave some money back. She exceeded the amount of donations she could get. Uh, how much, you know, so you've got the, the midterm factor, you got the Trump factor. How solid is her incumbency in your view? I mean, I'd say uh, at, at best case scenario for Tudor Dixon right now, this race is a toss up. Uh, I think that uh, overall it's leaning democratic and, I think, as you rightly point out, when you look at midterm elections, historically and even now, the, generally what's seen as the prevailing wind here is the party in power in Washington and how they're doing and how they're viewed by the population. And right now we have a deeply unpopular Democratic president in Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have also really poor economic conditions. It's weird because it's, you know, it, Republicans will insist that we're in a recession because mm -hmm. I think also that plays well for them electorally. But when you look at unemployment, you know, it's still hovering around 3.6%. Right. That's ex is extremely low unemployment, but yet costs are rising and inflation is something that can really hurt Democrats as well. And so these are things that are working against them. But at the same time, we also have major national issues like uh, the access to abortion, which are more mm -hmm. than likely going to be on the ballot in November. And this really sort of pushes things in the other direction for Democrats. I think right. really results in Kansas from the constitutional amendment. We're in a deep red state. Uh, voters decided to reject an amendment and, in other words, protect the access to an, uh, an abortion, you know, with 60 percent of the vote, which uh, I think a lot of Democrats are looking to is sort of a, a poll star that hopefully if we can maintain that kind of support moving into November, we're going to have a real shot. Well, that's fast. I really the whole uh, ballot initiative um, is, subject is very interesting to me because of the types of voter base that can be activated by that is even in a in uh, midterm elections, but you may tap into voters who typically would just stay home. And uh, I don't know if that's a known, if you can kind of quantify or estimate the effect of that, uh, or if it's, it's just a wild card. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that this is one of those things where you might hear something in polling about people's views on this issue, but then in private when they're voting and it's about like what they're actually able to do with their individual bodies. And I'm speaking in particular to female voters here. Um, you might see different things, a different outcome at, at the, uh, at the uh, ballot box. But um, 
I think that one thing that's important to note here is that a lot is going to rest on how this ballot measure can be characterized. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of broad language in it, and some of it somewhat vaguely worded. And so as a result, you're going to hear Republicans say that this is an amendment that will allow abortion up until the day of birth. Oh, a consultant right. who's working on the no vote uh, would say is considering running ads that might say that it'll allow abortion after birth. <laughs> and so you're going to hear a characterization that this is extremely broad, extremely radical. Um, whereas when you hear the yes vote and from Democrats who are running as though this, this is what this election is about in large part, it, because they need that turnout in, in a midterm year, um, they're going to say this is just about abortion, period. Whether yeah. you get it or, or not at all. And uh, whether you have access to that procedure, period. And uh, there's going to be an enormous amount of money spent in both directions here. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, what message is more successful and how that affects Election Day. Right. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, with COVID, the first year COVID from that March of 2020 to the end of the year, early next year, was in the public spotlight. She was a, talking about a lightning rod um, and she was in the ring. She was mixing it up about, you know, social distancing and health restrictions and all that stuff. And then she really went quiet, um, you know, late in 2021, probably, you know, they got daily polls. They probably started thinking about uh, 2022, but she's been really, really quiet. Um, what's she going to run on? Um what do you think that campaign's going to look like? And where's all that money she raised? How's she going to spend that? Right. I think that in 2018, you know, you really sort of saw a masterful campaign and her ability to pivot to the center and stick to a, a, an issue and a message and hammer it, fix the damn roads all the way into the governor's office. Um, I think that this year is going to have to be a lot more multifaceted for the governor than that. It can't be just sort of this one single signature issue, especially when, uh, you know, I think to a certain extent, Republicans are going to try and uh, hold her feet to the fire on this issue. Obviously, I think as a lot of pollsters mm -hmm. and consultants I've talked to note, you see orange construction barrels everywhere. So it's hard to say that, you know, whether the roads are, you know, any better condition it does at least seem like they're being fixed if you've drawn if you've driven on a freeway recently um, amen i drive all over the state <laughs> it's been the worst summer i can remember for construction or best yeah. i guess if you're her right right and so um i think that this is going to be a, a lot more multifaceted uh, election for her um and I don't know what I am interested to see what prominence sort of her COVID-19 response is going to be. I mean, she spent the first part of the pandemic really sort of trying to own the response. And people, uh, at least her base, her constituency was really in favor of the way she was acting. But regardless of how you feel about how uh, stringent, you know, the public health response to COVID-19 should be, uh, pandemic, I think, uh, fatigue affected all of us. You know, people got bored of the restrictions and lockdown and wanted to get back to regular life, regardless of whether or not we had public health indicators showing that that was safe to do. And so it sort of becomes something that I think she would rather not touch for the most part. But I don't necessarily know that if focusing on it, uh, as uh, her now opponent will, is doing, uh, Tudor Dixon, she's in speeches, she's referring to her a lot as the shutdown queen. Um, whether that's going to be a winning message for her. I don't know. It's really something that you're going to have to target towards independence. And I don't, I haven't seen any particular polling on how independents feel about the response. Um, because I think, as you noted, you know, once, once she was done with these restrictions, she was done. And uh, we didn't really hear much more in terms of like actual changes to laws or regulations after June right. 2021. No. And you said all politics local, which is true. 
Um, but all politics is kind of recent too. I mean, you know, George H.W. Bush coming out of Desert Storm at an 80, 85% approval rating, and then the economy went in the toilet and six months later, he wasn't president. So I, I think people, uh, you know, yes, uh, we remember wearing masks or can't, can't go into restaurants and had to get the food. At the, we remember all that, but we're not living it right now. We're kind of doing what we want. So I, I don't know what the hangover effect of that is. Um, Simon, we could go for hours, but uh, we're running up on our, our deadline here. Uh, as a political expert, a great journalist, um, and we got months ahead of us now that are going to be really, uh, you're, you're, you're busy season, obviously. This is like the start of the NFL season for you or something. Um, what are the two or three things that you really want to look into, key things that you want to report on for, for MLive readers heading uh, towards November? Right. I think that uh, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how um, the last two years since the beginning of 2020 have changed sort of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's uh, approach to leadership and uh, governing, uh, you know, as, you know, the highest elected official in the state and how that's changing her campaign and her vision for Michigan moving forward. Because, you know, she came into this saying like, you know, I'm going to work with the legislature to get this roads thing done. And they would not go along with her at all in this regard. And uh, so she sort of blazed her own trail. And then um, although she's been able to get budgets done, She's, uh, uh, you know, had to be, had to produce her own funding, procure her own funding to fix the roads. And um, so I'm really interested in how she's transformed and what kind of, what she looks like as a candidate in 2022 versus 2018, because there's market changes. And I think that they're worth uh, informing readers about. Um, the other thing too, I think is the uh, uh, enduring tension in the Republican party between its grassroots and establishment wings. And um you know, whether that's just more superficial than anything and whether uh, sort of the party can coalesce and get the grassroots on board and make them come along with whatever message they like, or, uh, but also at the same time to see where these tensions still persist. I think that's really important. It's always fascinating. Um, it's not always as crazy as 2020, but uh, we're living in unusual times and we're seeing sea changes in politics. It's for someone who interested in it or reports on it it's a it's a great time to be a political reporter thanks for joining us on behind the headlines today simon thanks for your insights and your time and i wish you good luck you and your peers and colleagues uh good luck from now until november 8th thanks so much john always a pleasure and there they go big thanks to simon and john for being here as always if you like what we do like comment and share wherever you get your podcast he is john heiner i am eric Hulkern, and this is behind the headlines